Hi everyone, welcome back to Not By Sight. I'm Deborah Stewart. In response to the recent killing of George Floyd and other senseless black deaths, I wanted these next two episodes to focus on the plight of the black community. I sat down with three very close black friends of mine to hear their stories of racism, racial disparities during COVID-19, police harassment, and the fears and challenges they face in the ways they have to raise their children. They also discussed their influential upbringings and how their spiritual faith impacts their worldview of the division going on in our country right now. My friends also addressed potential solutions to eradicating systemic racism. These three women are truly walking by faith, not by sight. In this valley of racism, they are and have every right to be outraged and angry over the repeated injustices they see happening to their black brothers and sisters. But my friends continue to use their voices to spread love and sow seeds of faith in their communities. These women are like family to me. They have poured their faith into me during dark seasons of life and have upheld me with their healing prayers. Today, I want to uplift them and give them a platform for their voices to be heard. Please welcome Shirlene Payne, Desiree DeBose, and Allie Thomas to Not By Sight. This is part one of Faith in the Valley of Racism. Ladies, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we have a lot to tackle um, tonight on the show. First, I'd love for you guys to each introduce yourselves. So whoever wants to start first. Okay, well, I will start first because I believe I am um, the person that you've known the longest on this panel today. (laughs) Yep. Um, My name is Shirlene Payne. And um, I live in Westwood, New Jersey, a small Bergen County town um, in northern New Jersey, Um, born and raised. And that is where I met Debbie. Mm -hmm. And um, we've been very good friends. She was my first friend um, in kindergarten, actually, and she became my best friend. Mm -hmm. And I am now a mother of three. I have... um, my daughter that's in college and my two teenage girls. And I am a social worker. I work for the state of New Jersey where I work with foster children and foster parents. And I help to get the homes licensed so that they can provide nurturing homes to the children that are in need in the system of care. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Glad you're here. I will go next. Because I I probably have known Debbie the second longest. Um, my name is Desiree again. I am a resident of Westwood, New Jersey. Been here um, most of my life. Was born here. I am the cousin sister to Shirlene Payne, um, and she in fact introduced me to her first best friend Debbie when I moved back to Westwood in the third grade. And our connection has been strong uh, throughout the years. I am a licensed social worker, a mother of one 14-year-old fabulous son, and I work um, at Ramapo College of New Jersey in the graduate social work uh, department. I am 
a BSW and MSW field education coordinator, which means that I help students who are in the social work programs, both undergrad and graduate, pursue their dreams of working in the field of social work. I also um, was a former mental health therapist. I am going back into it. I did a lot of work with families and children who were at risk. Uh, So that's it. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. Mm -hmm. So glad you're here. Allie. Last but not least. Hi, I'm Allie. Mm -hmm. I am originally, I'm a native New Yorker, um, born and bred in um, New York and actually in the Bronx. And I went to school in Manhattan. Uh, I currently live in Miami. So I have three children. Uh, I have a daughter who's in college, um, actually in New York. She's in in Long Island at uh, Stony Brook. She's here now due to COVID. And um, I have a 15-year-old boy and an 11-year-old boy. And... um, been married 20 years and um, I am a fashion designer. Um, That's what I've pretty much always done. Mm -hmm. And I've had my own line before and then I took a break and I decided to teach for a couple years. Then I took a couple years off to do other artistic projects and I'm actually relaunching my line again. So we got some strong Northern roots representing on this show tonight. Yeah. I think it's, it's fair to say, which I'm, which I'm kind of happy about when I put it out there. Do you guys want to be on the show? How would you feel about coming on? Um, Tell me what was the, you know, main reasons why you were like, you know what? I think, yes, I want to be on this podcast because I have something obviously to say here. Well, this is Charlene speaking. Um, I was very excited to come on here to talk with you guys um, and just, you know, allow us to have, a, allow myself and us ladies to have a voice on, um, you know, how much we've been impacted um, by things in society and, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and also how we've been affected by this pandemic that hit us like a storm. Um, many of us were impacted by um, COVID and I myself was impacted um, on a very personal level. My mother um, did not win the battle against um, COVID-19. And so all these wounds that are so fresh during this time of this pandemic um, become even deeper wounds and bigger wounds because of, you know, the, the media portraying, um, so many, um, people that are just really, um, hurt and angry and disappointed and, you know, all these different windmill of emotions, you know, I just wanted to be able to just represent for, a black young lady in the society with children that are growing up in a society and also working with children in mm-hmm. the society and how they've been impacted and how it impacts us as well. What about you, Desiree? Um, I was very excited to do this when you asked me, Deb, 
Um, one, because, you know, we're all, we were all experiencing one thing at one time. We, the whole country, the world was experiencing COVID at the same time. So I feel like we were all universally going through one form of trauma and then, you know, having now experiencing and the racial traumas have been ongoing, but, you know, when you pile it on, on top of a, a major trauma of being quarantined, of being isolated, of uh, not being able to interact with people, that just, to me, is like the straw that can break the camel's back. Um, and I want to draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, many of us, as a result, are, to quote Jason Wilson, are traumatized humans unable to grieve because everything is just so piled up. And um, Shirley's mom was my aunt. And so, there, you know, so I experienced that as well. And I just want to shed light on the fact that everything that we're experiencing in the natural also has, um, also is occurring in the supernatural, in the spiritual world. And, you know, the word of God says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of the air. And so even though we are experiencing these things in the natural, you know, I want to draw attention to the fact that we can target them as well in the spiritual but we first need to be aware of them and know how to target them so that we can fight against it. And to ultimately look at how God sees us, how he views us, and he views us as his children. And I think it's important to not discount the fact that we are individuals racially and ethnically, but also we are humans. And how can we, how can we love on each other? How can we be human without stepping on one another, without hurting one another and embracing one another and ultimately unifying. And we can have disagreements, but we can't oppress. We can't continue to feel that we have the power and the ability and the authority to oppress anyone because we were not created to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Allie. Honestly, when, when this first, when this, um, I want to start with the whole George Floyd thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. When this first started, I kind of was just in a um, numb state because for me, um, I I think it I I was jolted by, if I may be frank, my white friends that were contacting me. They were all contacting me and, and they were like, Allie and DMing me and and texting me, telling me how they were standing with me. And I was like, oh, what? Like, I was confused with what I was getting. I was confused with that. And I felt like I, I even had a friend who called. I mean, this is a friend that I talk to all the time that called and said, Allie, I can't imagine what you must be going through. And I was like, I, we, we go through this, we've been going through this forever. Like, this is not something new for us. I mean, if I can, for myself, for, for, um, others, this has been happening. And since we're kingdom people in this conversation, I could say that, you know, COVID has brought the world to its knees so that, it prepared the hearts to be able to be softened enough for this act to actually mean something. Where, whereas all the others, the Emmett Till's, the Sandra Bland's, all the others, 
in the past were just brushed off. All the other uh, comments, complaints, requests, all the, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you say something? <clears throat> all of that, you know, was just brushed off to the point where, you know, both of you ladies are health, um, mental health professionals to some capacity. And you understand the whole concept of stuffing your feelings. And I, and I just Absolutely. believe as a feel, as a, as a people, um, we've been made to stuff our feelings, mm -hmm. um, to stuff them to, to meet a status quo, to stuff them to not fall into a stereotype. We, 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 most of us run away from the stereotypes. So I just, you know, I, I I thought it was a great time that for us to seize this moment, you know, and 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 just begin talking about this. Right. So yeah. Yeah, well and I and, and I think you really touched on something when you said, you know, the whole, you know, with, with coronavirus, it you know, it's like everybody was already indoors and isolated and sitting, so they had to really see what what was happening with the injustices um and with with george floyd it, it, it you know i think everybody's eyes were glued and on it um but like you said this has been going on for years and years and years and because i was sitting there going like why all of a sudden are people protesting why is this all of a sudden like really big like everybody's running out now in the streets and i think there is a connection to yeah. this pandemic yeah um I mean, do, like, are you guys surprised by, by the connection of it? I mean, because I, I'm sure you would agree with Allie, you know, that this has been going, I mean, this is no, it's not like a surprise, you know, to see what happened with George Floyd. I think well, it's, okay, I I'm sorry. I think, no, you're right. Everyone's right. It's not, it's, um, it is something that's been occurring. I think, um, Allie's right. And you guys are right. When you say the, um, pandemic has kind of forced people to, realize some things and, and for many people get in touch with feelings um, because a lot of people were struggling in the home and I think it made people more vulnerable and emotional. But I also think it has to do with the way he was killed. It was extremely blatant to see the officer's eyes look directly into the camera with his hand mm. in his pocket, almost saying, what are you going to do? Like, this is going to happen. I'm going to do it. I'm going to succeed. And I'm going to walk. And that's going to be that. He just didn't care. And there was like a level of evil in his eyes. And I think that just could not be overlooked. And there was no threat. You know, usually there's, oh, I feared for my life. I feared for my life. But that wasn't even something that was brought up. He didn't even say it, you know. So I think it just was the, just the total wickedness and how heinous it was that just could not be ignored. It was as if he had his knee on an animal that he had just hunted and it was his prize. Exactly. exactly. I, and I want to add on to that too, that, um, you know, m people are more empathetic because they've, there's a shared um, sense of loss across the board. I mean, loss of loved ones, loss of life activities, loss of, um, of jobs, loss of, like there's like so many layers of loss that 
so many have experienced that it has definitely caused a more cohesive, you know, um, community in, in, even in the small communities and even on a large scale, you know what I mean? Um, and so their hearts are softened. They, they, many people are more in tune with their spirituality. They've had to, they've had to find that, that thing that they may not have been standing on that, they had to go back to that foundation and in order to get through those really tough times, whether they were sick themselves or a loved one was sick that they wanted to pull through or a friend or, you know, it was just so many layers to that. And I believe because God has softened the hearts of many, um, that they were able th- this, the view of seeing the blatant, um, demeanor of this officer, um, on this, this man that was, that was not only just begging for his life and, and begging for them to stop and just begging to breathe, but then he begged for his mom. And that is a universal language right there. Everyone knows that place when you are at your wit's end. And if a grown man can call out for his mom, that is the thing that pierced a lot. I heard that mm-hmm. over and over and over again from a lot of people. Yeah. Like just closing their eyes. And this is what I said to some people too, to to even help, you know, them understand, like close your eyes and think about your brother being that person that's calling for your mother or your uncle or your cousin or your sister or your mom, or your dad, like, you know, and I ran down all the different family members. I'm like, close your eyes. Now imagine that's yours. You know what I mean? And so I believe that that is what really stirred up the nation because God has softened so many hearts. And so, and then the accountability also came out because then we were many of us, and I'm going to say we, because I was one of them. Like, don't just dance to our TikTok songs. Don't just dance to the culture. Don't just wear clothing and, and talk and whatever whatever it is that you want to do to affiliate yourself with the culture that was founded by those Black people. Don't just do that. If you're going to do that, then you need to be hand in hand and side by side. This is not just their flight and our flight and my flight. This is yours. You know what I'm saying? So I believe that that has been some of the things that that made an impact this time around. Mm-hmm. I love what you just shared there, Charlene. Um, I want to take us back to some of your earliest uh, or most impactful memories of being discriminated against uh, because of the color of your skin. I know that there might be some early memories or there might be some that are just like, you know, that here's one that happened that really kind of changed my whole world. Hmm. Uh, There are so many, but my very first memory is uh, Shirlene and I playing with some other kids. Uh, It used to be called the dump and they had a baseball field there, but there was also a, a garbage uh, dump and it just happened to be on the predominantly black side of town 
Um, it's now a cleaned up park and it's called Westvale. But there was a baseball game going on and Shirlene's older brother was playing and a few of us uh, young kids and we were probably like eight years old, seven or eight years old. And we were climbing up the hill and we, we climbed underneath the gate. And as we were climbing underneath the gate, we were told not to, but we snuck and did it anyway. There was a hearse that was driving by and there were a few, there were three or four men in there in a black hearse dressed up as clowns. And they pointed, I don't know if they were real. They looked very real, very guns at us. And I can't remember the exact racial slur that they said to us. They said nigger. Okay. Um, But I remember. They said, hey, nigger. Yeah. It was so weird. Yeah. And so they pointed to Mm. me, they look like guns. And so I remember that as my very first experience that someone didn't look at us as we were children. They looked at us as we um, were nothing and there was no care and just kept on going. And they were laughing hysterically. And like, it was this, just the funniest thing ever. We were traumatized. I will never forget that memory. Never, ever, ever, as long as I live. I can remember how they looked. I can remember the, the way the car looked and how it slowed up when it got to us yep. and how it rolled its windows back up, how they rolled their windows back up and just, you know, drove off in laughter. Like it was just the funniest thing ever. And I can remember us like sliding, almost sliding down this dirt hill. Screaming. Running, yeah, screaming and running to our parents and telling them, what had happened to us. And it turns out that they were like, you know, they had been seen throughout the town, but they didn't do that to anybody else. Mm. And I will add on to that. I then became terrified of clowns Um, for much of my life. It's, it probably was like in adulthood when I finally overcame that fear. Um, And there was a local um, clown called Dinkus the Clown. Yeah, he did the town parades and he he just he really loved all children and loved us so much and it hurt his feelings so much that I almost ra- I ran into the street running away from him, almost got hit by a car because I was terrified and um I I couldn't sleep um for for days every time I heard a horn because they bumped the horn I remember that and every time I heard like a siren like like you know how the whenever there's a fire the town in the small towns they you'll hear the the fire like the um sound the alarm type of thing Mm -hmm. um that the the trucks are all about to leave the the station so every time I heard that it would like legitimately like re-traumatized me mm-hmm. and I just thought it was like that car that hearse pulling up again mm-hmm. so that was our first encounter and then when I was when we were we were 14 mm-hmm. um um our cousin that lived in Teaneck um which is another small town um in Birkin County and they had our cousin had a, a group of friends that he was um, his best friends and we became very close to them as well. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, it was Desiree's one of Desiree's like little first crushes as well. Um, his name was Philip Pinnell. Many know that name. Yeah. And um, so my cousin would talk to him. We would hang out with them. I had my first childhood um, high school sweetheart yeah. was one of his best friends and also one part of that group of um, friends with our cousin. He was and the first boy that I kissed. 
<laughs> you know? So we had such strong connections to them. Um, and in 1990, he was shot and killed by Gary Spath, um, shot in his back with his hands raised. He was 16 years old. And that was the first um, experience of loss of a friend, of someone. So mm-hmm. like we've we've had like family members that were older and our aunt that passed, but a friend mm-hmm. that was our first experience. Yeah. And it was devastating. And that was the first march that we ever marched in mm-hmm. to protest mm-hmm. the ruling for the officer being um, found not guilty for murder. When um, it was proven that again, his hands were up. And also called for his mother. Yes, he did. Yet again in that state. So this is all so difficult to see. The Ooh. re-traumatization of watching that's why you know people many people do not understand just as Ali stated that this has been going on for so long over and over and over again and it is just constantly re-traumatizing we become numb we become used to hearing about yet another person that was killed Mm -hmm. but it still reopens wounds it still re-traumatizes us we don't Many of us may not realize it. And to also know know that that police officer in particular had said to him on several occasions how he was going to get him. Mm. And none of that was entered into court. Um, You know, I can remember when he would come out here with our cousin and hang out with us and we would walk them to the bus stop. And I can remember a police officer stopping us then. We were just walking in Westwood, um, heading towards Emerson and stopped us and harassed us. And we, I forget what he asked us, but, um, we didn't have the answer. And he's like, well, ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. And since when he's walking to the bus stop, breaking the law, I mean, the memories are endless, endless. I can remember being pulled over with my, um, ex-husband when we were dating every single day in this town and it got to the point the officer would say, Debose, right? All right, go ahead. Because in the same car, um, Shirley could tell you I have gone off, lost my mind on police without a care, argued them down. I was just that angry. I didn't care what would happen if I had gotten arrested, if I had gotten shot, because I was that angry by that time. And, you know, the, the memories and the encounters are are so numerous that the whole interview would be taking up just listen listing them. Literally. We had to warn anyone that came to visit us as we become became young adults and and you know went off to college and then came back home for breaks and everything. We had to warn anyone that came to visit us to make sure you don't go over the speed limit. Make sure you don't look, you know, it's this, this way of train. Like we have to train our kids too. you know, if the police pull you over, don't do this and make sure you don't look this way and make sure you do this. And it was like constantly, this is what we had to do. And then we became friends with some of the local police officers, Mm -hmm. which was great. And we were able to express these things to them. Um, I've definitely seen a change, you know, living in the same community it has definitely became more of a community policing um, environment and, and tactics that are being um, used these days. But there's still challenges. My my ex husband, who's 
you know, has the same last name as my children that are playing on the same teams and they've seen them on the, at the basketball games and the soccer games and, and they still pull them over, you know, they still pull them over and, and, and look and see if the sticker in the window is legit, you know, it's just, it's just, it's very, it's very difficult. It's frustrating, but it is the world that we live in. And I think it's interesting too, because I, you know, I lived in New Jersey. My parents are New Yorkers. They're from the Bronx. And I grew up in New Jersey till I was 12. And then I moved to the South to North Carolina when I was 13. And even hearing these stories of what happened to you and what still happens um, to you and your friends and your family getting pulled over, like I would assume, which is, is an assumption that that's, that that wouldn't happen in New Jersey because it's the North. But I think there's almost like too, like a stereotype, like people think, oh, that just happens in the deep South. Yeah. Well, I guess it's clear that, that this is, um, a global problem when you see people in like Iran and all these other really, um, interesting places that are protesting you know, yeah. you're like, people have had enough. If I want to talk about my experiences, I, you know, as I told you before, I wasn't brought up in a household where we said white people, this white people that be worried about this. We were, I wasn't brought up with that because I'm first generation American. I'm, I'm actually the first American in my family. My, my sister was born in London. My brother still lives in London. My parents met in London. <clears throat> and um, my mom, is Jama- she's Jamaican. And my dad was, was from West Africa, from Ghana, West Africa. So there in, in London where they lived, they had a very mishmash of ethnicities. And then I grew up that way. However, I still because it wasn't something that we talked about at home and there was no anti-white or the man or the white man's going to think this or white people this, because that conversation wasn't in my home, there's, it's, there's pluses and minuses to it because I was ill-prepared for dealing, for accepting uh, or, or for experiencing racism and I didn't realize when I was when it was even being done to me you know I didn't realize that I took it personal as if it was something wrong with me the person not my color I did not know um I had I remember one time going in the train station and kids at a certain age they didn't have to buy a token that's when people use tokens So we would just have like, I remember going somewhere with my sister. I don't know how old I was. I might've been eight or nine. And, um, you know, we we were little, so we'd squeeze through the turnstile together on one token because um, she was probably the one that was like 12 or 13, you know, and, we heard the train coming and I'm, I'm 
I can't remember what happened, but somehow I got stuck at the turnstile. <laughs> the lease officer comes, they used to have bathrooms in the train station years ago. And the policeman comes out of the turnstile, I mean, comes out of the bathroom. And he's like, you know, I can't remember exactly what he said because I was so little. It was something to the effect of hold it right there. And he just gave me this talking to about, I'm going to let you go this time. But this, this is um, fair evading. We're breaking the law. And if I catch you doing this here again, I'm going to bring you down to central booking. This is what you tell a little girl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This, this is what you this is what you tell a little girl. And I don't I don't mean to go back to the original subject, but you know, I just want to say I'm really sorry for your loss, Charlene. That thank you. I really very, appreciate um, that. Thank you. That was very disheartening to hear. And um as my daughter and I have been discussing that, you know, part of the, the fruit of this systemic racism is malpractice in medical facilities. And yes. sometimes it's not even, sometimes it's a neglect thing, you know, yes. um, so many different, yes. so many different things um, pertaining to black people that that we could really um, open up right now. So I just, you know, I just wanted to um, give you my condolences for that. And that's just so brave of you to be able to um, speak out right now in this forum with such a fresh mm -hmm. wound. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And, and I'm sure you heard me get choked up a few times. <laughs> um, but it's important for me to hold it together and get the point out and, and get the word out and from a spirit that is truly a spirit that loves the Lord, but also a spirit that is frustrated and angry. Because those are exactly, you hit it right on the head, Allie, the anger of the disparities that's, that is going on regarding COVID and then it spills over. So it's so many layers to this. When people are trying to understand, when, when other cultures are trying to understand, well, I'm not even going to say other cultures because a lot of them do understand when, when, the, when our white brothers and sisters are trying to understand why we're just so angry that we just have to tear up everything. And that, and most of the people that are protesting are not the ones that are just tearing up things. There's different sectors in this, whenever these big major protests occur, like there's people with the right intentions, there's people that are just there for speci specifically to do this. And then there's people that are just there to specifically to do the other thing of cleaning up and looting um, and, and not there for the protesting part of it. Um, but then there are some that get caught up in that because their emotions are so high. And then what do you do with that? How do you contain it? 
You can't take it out on the people that you feel like are the ones that are to blame. So you take it out on the stores. You take it out on the owners of in the, those stores that, that would profile you every time you went in that store. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many reasons why certain individuals have reacted in the ways that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to talk about your mom, Charlene, because I feel like she was such a, she was such a warm, welcoming woman. Like I have memories of her. I have memories of coming to your home and, and spending the night and hanging out. And, um, she just, she always had a smile on her face. It was like, I felt like I was one of her kids. Like she treated everyone the same. And like, what, what about your mother? Like what role do you feel like she played in your upbringing when it came to relating to everybody? Because you and Desiree, you both, like you're so good at relating to everyone. Um, what, you know, what did your mother instill in you from when you were a young child and even just your, your home life that made you who you are today? Oh, that's such a great question. Thank you. Cause this is also allowing me to, to pay reverence to my mom. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I, that woman, she has so many friends, um, of every single culture, every background. She showed me through her example of what God's love really is. Like it even for animals. I mean, the raccoons come in the yard and they eat up and tear up all of our stuff. And even the raccoons, she'd be like, they got to eat. They got to eat too. And I'm like, but I got to clean up. But they got to eat, Charlene. God created them. They have to eat, you know? So that's who she was. She loved everyone. She gave everyone a chance. She was a care. She worked at the local hospital for over 30 years and um, she retired from there. And so many people, I remember being with my mom, like in, in, in town or wherever have you, they would come and they say, oh my gosh, you were the nurse that took care of my mom. You were the nurse that took care of my, my dad or whatever. And they never forgot her. So I would see this daily, like daily, I'm telling you. And so I got a chance to see what it is to to pour love onto people that are strangers, um, that are in need, um, that, you know, you would want to be treated like if that was your mother or your family member and, and treat them that way. And then she remained connected to them. She, she let them know, like, I remember you too. It made them feel like they were important. It made them feel like they meant something to her. And I learned to, to do that as well. You know, she was a caregiver to my, my grand, my grandparents and her sibling, her older brother that was ill. Like she just always gave. And because of that, I learned to serve. And when it comes to serving, it doesn't have any barriers. Serving is being a servant is being a servant. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to say that much about her. 
What about you, Desiree, with your with your aunt Cheryl? I think everything Shirlene said is 100% accurate. But just to even go a little broader, because Aunt Shirley came from someone as well, you know, her mother and our entire family, um, not just on Aunt Shirley's side, which is my mother's sister, um, but also on my father's side. And both families have taught us love. You know, it wasn't my father's side of the family and that side of the family. It was a collective family. Both sides were melded together. If any one of our friends got kicked out, whether they were white, black, Spanish, whatever, my parents took them in. And because of this upbringing that we had, no one went hungry. If you came to the house, all of our doors were always open. You never had a locked door between the households, never. Everybody can just walk in and there was no fear that we were ever going to be taken advantage of. And if you came in any one of our houses, there was food. Aunt Shirley would get us to go shopping and there was always two carts. <laughs> you grab one, one, and that's because there was an anticipation that there would be a need and we would need to meet it. Even though we knew hate was there, we didn't allow that. And our, our families wouldn't allow us to allow that to burn, no matter what experiences we've gone through. And they taught us that this is what Christ came to do and this is what you will do. But most of all, we understand love because that's what was poured into us from the very beginning, despite all the adversities. Well, and I love that it never, it's like you guys have all obviously gone through a lot and you have experienced so much racism just based on the stories of what mm-hmm. you have shared that your family has actually endured that you guys personally have endured. How did you handle that? We also understood that we have to be a part of the change. We can't just talk about the change. So now we're involved in um, different town committees and um, mm. attending different events because you can yell and scream all day long. You want change, but you also have to be a participant in the change as well. You know, you we ha- sometimes you have to mirror for people. Sometimes you have to be the example for people. So I think it's also helped that we haven't, you know, shied away from that. And, you know, people have you know, sought us and said, hey, why don't you come and help? Or, you know, do you think you'd want to be a part of? And you can't say, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, but no, I'm not going to be a part. So I think it's, I think it's twofold. It's having support of your loved ones and your community, but also willing to be a part of the solution. As I listened to all of what both of you had to say, I realized that, um, to touch on a point that Deb made in the beginning, about us all being from up north. And I really think that a lot of the same circumstances in the south would not have gone down the same way. I don't think that because I lived in the south for a little bit, I can't say that there's people who wish they could be involved in local government, who wish they could be involved in things but they can't even keep food on the table. They can't even get paid enough. Their children can't even get in decent schools. I mean, I can't, I can't um, turn up, and I'm not saying that you are, I'm just saying that I can't turn a blind eye to people who have not been afforded the same circumstances as what I have had. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, as, as, a, as a possible solution 
to this big problem. I think these are the kind of subjects that we need to tackle. We continue this conversation in part two of Faith in the Valley of Racism. Please be sure to subscribe to Not By Sight on iTunes so you can be notified when the next episode is released. In the meantime, please share this episode with others. Thanks for listening.